I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. A very pleasant uh, fall. Welcome to you, wherever you're tuned into the show before the show podcast this week. I'm just looking out my window and there's like yellow leaves and red leaves and it's beautiful and the temperatures are crisp and it's uh, it feels like World Series time. And that is where we find ourselves here on this week's episode of the show before the show. We welcome you into uh, the latest edition of the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. Tyler Ron, Sam Dykstra, Benjamin Hill. Gents, what's going on? How are you? Pretty good. Tyler, I, I am back in New York. You are. Uh, you are shoulder to shoulder with Ben right now. Yes, which is very, very nice. We were talking, it feels like it's been a month since we've seen each other, uh, just because of all the movement going around this fall, which has been great, and we'll get into that in later segments. But uh, yeah, good bit, good to be back in New York where there is actual fall. Um, we are staring at a tree ourselves right now over uh, the Avenue of the Americas, but it is the Christmas tree, and I kid you not that Radio City has already put up. What? Outside. Yeah. It is not even Halloween. Yeah, no. but this is Radio City Music Hall, home of the you know the Rockettes. And the right, Christmas but don't they start that like mid-November? Well, I mean, I guess you got to promote. Yeah, you got to sell tickets to them. Not, not a, to be all, you know, as Christmas though people started by a conglomerate. As though people stuff. don't know that like, oh, the Rockettes do a show at Radio City for Christmas? Who knows? I mean, listen, man, if, you, <laughs> if you've got a show that, you've known, that you're known for and you try to sell out for weeks and weeks and weeks. That's true. Might as well promote it. Well, fun fact: uh, one of the one of the lone fun Mon family facts. My uh, my, I guess she would technically be like my step grandma. Uh, was a rocket. My grandpa married a former rocket. She was a rocket like in the forties, forties or fifties. Pretty cool though, right? Jeez, yeah, that's very American somehow. Yeah, yeah. 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 Get out of the war and marry a former rocket. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. An American um, short story on that ASAP. Right now. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to submit it to Josh Jackson, the most talented the short story writer among us. I'm sure. That is true. Uh, oh, I get it. I get <laughs> it. jokes. Kicker would be fantastic. Um, well, let's dive in talking about uh, this off season that is now fully underway here in minor league baseball. We are in the midst of tackling a massive project uh, across the MILB spectrum, which you can find at MILB.com uh, and at MLB.com as well. Our ballpark guides continue. We are over the course of this offseason, from now through opening day, we're going to roll out a ballpark guide for every ballpark across the minor leagues. And we are very excited about that. Uh, I had my first one run this week. Ben has continued to crank them out. Josh Jackson is on ballpark guide duty. Um, ben, give us the, the rundown of what your latest have been. Yeah, you know, we've been talking about the Ballpark guides on and off uh, over the last couple months. And Tyler, it's great to have you on board as a ballpark guide contributor and uh, looking forward to more of those. You know, as we've mentioned in the past, it's great to read these as individual write-ups and, you know, we're happy every single time one gets done because it's just like another piece of the puzzle done. But where I think this project will really shine is, you know, when everything's put together in one place as a one-stop resource for planning your own minor league uh, road trips. So I'm just really excited for this to come together. My most recent uh, ballpark guide, you know, Tyler did the Myrtle Beach Pelicans. I did the Lynchburg Hillcats, Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, that ballpark is now called, through a corporate naming rights deal, it's called Bank of the James Stadium. Um, but it actually was known as City Stadium for the bulk of, his, of its existence. And that existence goes back to 1940. Uh, the first ball, uh, game that that ballpark in Lynchburg, Virginia ever hosted was an exhibition between the New York Yankees and the Brooklyn Dodgers. And so here we are now in its ninth decade, 80 some years later, uh, still hosting minor league baseball in the form of the Lynchburg Hillcats. So I think it's easy to overlook that ballpark, but it's the fifth oldest ballpark in all of minor league baseball. And just given the size of Lynchburg, Virginia and how old that ballpark is, you know, if you were a betting man, woman, person, 
you probably wouldn't have bet the Lynchburg Hillcats would, would be a minor league baseball team and, you know, still going strong in the twenties. So I think it's a great story about, uh, you know, community commitment, local ownership, um, making the necessary improvements to keep that ballpark functional. Um, and it's for how old it is. And, you know, it's a fun place to visit if you like the classic parks. So read all about it. They also sell cheesy Westerns there, which is a Lynchburg specialty uh, invented at a diner in Lynchburg called the Texas Inn or the Texas Tavern. Um, it's basically a cheeseburger with some special homemade relish and a fried egg, but it's the, it's a Lynchburg institution. And, uh, get a cheesy western when you visit the lynchburg hillcats and feel like a local and tyler you got to revisit myrtle beach where you spent some time as a broadcaster what was it like writing about that again yeah it was it was weird i unfortunately did not get to revisit it like in person um and have not since i left there uh 10 years ago as the radio guy but um it was good to to catch up ryan moore friend of the podcast of course who we had on the show uh a few months ago to talk about the the viral run of uh, Myrtle Beach's uh, baseball bat beers, uh, the beer bats, which uh, are available at ballparks across the country. But for whatever reason, the the Pelicans version went viral on the internet this year. Um, it was really cool catching up with Ryan about, you know, some of the ballpark changes and improvements and, and stuff that's gone on uh, over the last few years. The Pelicans, what I think has been really neat about what Myrtle Beach has done, they've really seized on their affiliation with the Chicago Cubs. They've been a Cubs affiliate now for six years, seven years. Um, and they have they have grasped onto that uh, with both hands. So they have some Chicago-themed concessions, uh, which are very cool. Uh, Ryan told me about their deep dish pizza burger, which is a burger sandwiched between two mini deep dish Chicago-style pizzas, uh, which sounds delicious and also like death. Um, but the, uh, the, the Pelicans, they have, a, an area for micro brews. I know they do some of their own micro brewing, I believe for uh, hops heaven, um, which is an area of the ballpark where you can, you can hang out at some, uh, you know, high top tables and, and drink some local beers. Um, and they've got Southern themed concessions as well, being in an area in South Carolina where um, they're loaded up with uh, with culinary masterpieces. And uh, and then writing about the, the community of Myrtle Beach, it's such an interesting uh, place for minor league baseball. It's a very interesting dynamic. It's kind of the opposite of a place like Lynchburg, um, where, you know, for uh, Hillcats fans, the Hillcats games are the thing to do uh, a lot of the summer. Not to say there aren't other fun things to do in Lynchburg, but it's a much smaller town, different community. For Myrtle Beach, the Pelicans kind of know, hey, we're never going to beat the actual beach in what people are traveling here for. So we make ourselves uh, the baseball option, the fun, affordable family entertainment option uh, for travelers who come down, tourists who come through uh, the Grand Strand area to, you know, hang out on the beach for a while, eat at buffets, eat at some of the, I believe Ryan told me there are 1,600 restaurants in a 60-mile uh, span around Myrtle Beach. Um, and so the Pelicans kind of know what their avenue is and they do it very, very well. So it was, yeah, it was neat to get a chance to, uh, to kind of revisit, um, you know, some of the, the stuff that I loved about being there and, uh, bouncing places off of, of Ryan to be like, Hey, is this, is this still around? Is this still a place where you guys go? And I was very happy. There was only one restaurant that I mentioned that he said, yeah, it's not really like in the staff rotation anymore. Uh, but every other place that I mentioned still was including, uh, a sandwich place called Dagwoods, which is, Still, like, I haven't been in Myrtle Beach for 10 years, and I still think about the Bubba's Kicking Chicken at Dagwoods on a fairly regular basis. Um, so, you know, if you find yourself in Myrtle, get yourself a Bubba's Kicking Chicken uh, Dagwoods. But it was fun. It was fun. So next up for me is uh, my maybe favorite stop in minor league baseball, which is Kinston, North Carolina, now home to the Down East Wood Ducks um, historic Ranger Stadium. That is the, uh, the next ballpark guy that I've got coming, which will be next week. Uh, very excited for that one. Granger stadium is much like Lynchburg. Uh, when you walk into Grand, I would say probably even more so than Lynchburg because Lynchburg has been modernized a little bit. When you walk into Granger stadium, you feel like you're walking back into the late 1940s in a very good way, in a way that you walk in and you think like, Oh, it's 1949. And this ballpark just opened last week. It's gorgeous. They've kept it so well-maintained covered grandstand, uh, you know, a, a big cinder block brick outfield wall, um, it's, it is a gorgeous place and I'm, uh, I'm very excited to be able to talk a little bit about Kinston and, uh, and all that stuff. So this is fun. This is a project that, um, 
Greg Clayman, who is uh, one of our higher ups on the the content side at MLB.com, he really kind of helped get the ball rolling on this with some inspiration from uh, an English soccer pitch guide that he really loves. And obviously we have the world's foremost authority on on ballparks across the minor leagues in uh, in one Benjamin Hill. So um, this has been a, a ton of fun. Ben, what do you have? Who do you have coming up next? Did you say that and I missed it? I didn't, but it is the Richmond Flying Squirrels. Ah, another good one. Is I'm working on that one, and uh, no, we diamond. can talk about that one later. But the Diamond is a really interesting ballpark. Yeah, um, it's they've been trying to get out of the Diamond for a long time. Um, it's an old ballpark, but myself and you know you guys might or you know people of a certain age, I find the Diamond to be a weirdly nostalgic place because it's the minor league equivalent of a you know 80s, early 90s, 70s, 80s, early 90s, all-purpose the stadium. cookie cutter a cookie cutter, big hunk of concrete, ugly and kind of brutalist and, um, you know, much bigger than most minor league stadiums. Um, so on one hand, you're like, this isn't a nice ballpark, but it speaks to, to me, what going, what minor league ballparks were like when I was a kid. And when I go there, I kind of like, I love this place. I'm going to be sad when they're not there. And the team operates really well, uh, in a way they, you know, hurt their own cause when it comes to getting a new ballpark because they keep leading the league in attendance. I'm like, is there tanking in minor league baseball attendance? Cause like <laughs> you guys should do this and prove that you need to go somewhere else instead of leading the league in attendance. But no, the ballpark needs a lot of work. I don't know how much longer it'll be around, but visit the diamond while you still can and uh, look for that ballpark guide. Coming Richmond is a very fascinating case study of minor league baseball that the diamond essentially forced out a triple-A team, uh, the Atlanta triple-A affiliate, which is now in Gwinnett, they were in Richmond uh, and, you know, said that they were no longer able to, to do it in Richmond and uh, ended up moving to Gwinnett to a brand new ballpark. And then the Flying Squirrels post up there and turn themselves into a national phenom uh, in the same ballpark that the previous franchise said was no longer tenable. So it's a very uh, interesting study in uh, in how franchises run and, and they have obviously made good there in Richmond. Um, ben, you've also got... Uh, what is probably coming down to the end of some of your in-person attendance stories this year from minor league ballparks, but taking a look at food around some of the places that you visited this year. Tell us what's coming up with that. Yeah, I visited eight minor league ballparks in 2021, uh, a very low number by my normal standards, but a very high number as compared to 2020, which is zero. So it was great to get back out there and getting back out there. I did what I've done every year since 2012 when I was diagnosed with celiac disease Uh, I recruited designated eaters uh, to consume the ballpark cuisine that my gluten-free diet prohibits. Uh, I've been recruiting designated eaters for, you know, basically almost a decade now, Um, you know, taking pictures, taking short videos, getting their quotes about uh, the food that they are eating at the ballpark. They do it on my behalf. They take those gluten bullets for me, but it's been a great, uh, a great thing. I always tell people, I I hope I would have come up with an idea like this, even if I hadn't had celiac disease, because it's a great way to meet people who, you know, who listen to this podcast, who engage with uh, our work, who, uh, even if they weren't too familiar, who are minor league baseball fans in some capacity and get to know them and who they are and the jobs they do and why they love minor league baseball. So in a way, it's a great way to, to profile local fans in addition to the food itself. Anyhow, this year, especially because I'm currently on a two-day-a-week parental leave schedule, I've not had the time to do my full-fledged individual write-ups on the food for every ballpark I visited, but I really wanted to write about the food beyond what appeared on you know, Instagram and especially Twitter you know, when I was visiting the ballpark. So I have a new article up on MILB.com, probably my last you know, road trip story of the year, featuring all eight of my designated eaters, all eight of the ballparks in which they ate at and uh, highlights of the food throughout those ballparks. And, you know, and it runs the gamut. You know, I started the season in Chattanooga, which is a pretty cramped, a little bit older ballpark, and they kind of only offer the basics. But I went to new ballparks, you know, like Polar Park and Worcester and uh, Fred Nats Ballpark and uh, Atrium Health in Kannapolis and Rocket City Trash Pandas, Toyota Field. So it runs the gamut between newer places, older places, regional specialties, specialty hot dogs, uh, everything in between. Um, I spent a lot of time putting it together and I hope people will give it a read. Uh, lots of embedded tweets, lots of food videos. You got stuffed mashed potatoes. You have lobster rolls. You have hot dogs topped with barbecue pork and macaroni and cheese. And you have a lot of things, but uh, it'll probably make you hungry if you read it. And uh, shout out to all the designated eaters of 2021. And uh, 
the ones who are still to come. All right, we are headed to Toledo this week, one of the oldest outposts in all of American professional sports. And uh, Ben, tell us what we've got coming up. Yeah, we're going to get into how the Toledo Mudhens are a unique organization in that they also run a hockey team, the Toledo Walleye. No S at the end of Walleye. I think I just realized that just before uh, we started taping. I was like, oh, make sure to refer to them as the Walleye and not the Walleyes. But the Toledo Mud Hens also Mud Hens also operate the Toledo Wall Eye, um, and that's a lot of work uh, for you know one front office to handle the operations of two teams. So we're going to explore how they do that with the you know Mud Hen season running into October this year and the uh, Wall Eye season uh, starting essentially right now at the end of October. The Wall Eye play in the ECHL, which I just want to point out because I love this term. ECHL is an orphan initialism, meaning something that used to stand for something but no longer does but is still utilized. The ECHL used to stand for East Coast Hockey League, but the league expanded to the point where it's not in the East Coast anymore and it's not known as the East Coast Hockey League anymore, but yet they still call it the ECHL. The only other infant uh, orphan initialism I'm aware of is AT&T is also an orphan initialism. And I'm asking people who are listening to this podcast uh, to please email me, benjamin.hill at mlb.com. Hit me up on Twitter at Ben's Biz with examples of orphan initialisms because I just think that's an interesting concept. Anyway, we did not that talk is. about orphan initialisms. We talked about the Toledo Mudhens running a hockey team, the transition between seasons, and we talked to a very special guest, and you'll find why at the end of the interview he was particularly special to talk to on this particular day, uh, Mike Keedy in the Mudhens front office, to tell us all about a unique operation and running two sports within the same front office. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The 2021 minor league baseball season at the AAA level Went later than any minor league baseball season in recent memory, uh, certainly later than any season in decades, uh, all the way to October 3rd. And um, so there's going to be a shorter offseason for minor league teams, but not for teams such as the Toledo Mudhens, who also run the Toledo Walleye ECHL hockey team. And uh, their season, the ECHL season, starts October 29th on Friday, and uh, Toledo's home opener is Saturday, November 6th. So there's uh, no rest in Toledo. You go from baseball season to hockey and hockey to baseball, and there's always something going on. And everyone who works for the Mud Hens front office also uh, has a role in operating the walleye. So it's a complicated situation, but I think we can make some sense of it. And here to discuss it all is Mike Keedy, the... Let me get this title right. The right. Director of Strategic Planning and Projects for the Toledo Mud Hens. Mike, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Exciting time of year here in Toledo. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about it. You hosted Mud Hens games up till October 3rd, and now the ECHL season is starting. What is uh, bigger picture, broadly speaking, what's it like in the front office um, running two teams and transitioning from one season to the next? Well, internally, we really we we normally are finished around Labor Day weekend with AAA season, and we've always affectionately called this uh, off month. This is our off month as we you know transition from uh, baseball into hockey, and having even a few weeks, uh, three four weeks of a buffer time between the two, uh, is really a, a nice thing because uh, we're getting. St- resettled back into the arena, starting to talk about all the, uh, all the different things that we have to do to operate hockey games as opposed to baseball games. And even more this year, because we have not played a home walleye game since March of 2020. It's been almost 600 days. Uh, so we're, we're really uh, even more than a normal year. This, is, uh, this has really been a sprint to restarting hockey uh, after the prolonged baseball season. 
uh, I, I would take it though over um, in the spring when the walleye could make a deep playoff run, which they have in the past. We've we've had walleye games into June where we're playing walleye hockey and mud hens baseball, oftentimes on the same night and same weekends. Uh, so the transition from baseball to hockey is actually uh, easier, I'd say. Yeah, and speaking of transition, uh, not only transitioning from baseball to hockey season, but transitioning uh, your baseball field to an outdoor hockey rink. Uh, tell us what's going on with that. Well, we do have one advantage. Uh, we're the only ECHL franchise to ever play an outdoor hockey game. We did it once before uh, with great success in 2014-15. We hosted two outdoor Toledo Walleye games uh, at our ballpark at Fifth Third Field in front of uh, 11,000 fans at each game. And now, seven years later, it was supposed to originally happen in 2020. It got postponed a year. Uh, seven years later, we're doing it again. Um, we have the good fortune of operating our own ballpark, so that takes out a layer of uh, trying to find a venue to do an outdoor hockey game. Uh, but this, uh, this holiday season on December 26th and December 31st, uh, we will host two outdoor hockey games uh, at Fifth Third Field uh, for the hockey team. And that's underway right now. We've torn out the whole field. All the grass is grown, uh, gone. They're building a giant sandbox where the rink will be installed, and that starts on December 16th. Yeah, and Mike, so many questions I ask of people who work for minor league ball clubs is how does the, the field play? You know, when we're talking about baseball, it could be a hitter's park, it could be a pitcher's park. What I want to know is how does fifth third field play as a ring? <laughs> well, I, what I always tell people is uh, it, it is a baseball stadium, so don't expect the same type of experience that you would at an intimate uh, arena, especially a, a smaller one like an 8,000-seat Huntington Center. But the, but the good thing about it is uh, this is not at, uh, you know, a 100,000-seat football stadium or – uh, even a major league ballpark, the fifth third field is an intimate stadium anyway. So the, the, every seat in the house is going to be close to the rink. We run it from third base to first base, and it may not be as good of a viewing experience as a indoor arena, but you're going to be right on top of the rink, even at a baseball facility like ours. Yeah. And, and going back to what you were talking about uh, a couple of questions ago of, walleye hockey being back and how great a feeling that is for the first time since March, 2020, you guys had to go through that process with the mud heads. You had to bring baseball back to fifth third field. What did you learn about that process of bringing baseball back uh, this spring? And how are you putting that into practice again uh, this fall? I know there are different things, outdoor arenas versus indoor arenas, et cetera. But what have you learned from the spring and taking it into the fall? Yeah, it's, it's been quite the experience. I, I remember um, we actually had a home game, a walleye game, on the night of uh, the day that the governor of Ohio announced the essentially the closure of the state. Um, and we played that game that night with no fans. And I can remember the press conference where uh, at the time – uh, the governor of Ohio said that uh, it was going to be a couple of weeks and this isn't going to impact opening day. I remember he specifically referenced that in talking about the Indians and, uh, and the Reds. And he's, you know, he said, every, this isn't going to impact opening day. It's just going to be a couple of weeks. And as we all know, that evolved many times over over the last couple of years. Um, so we played a game that night in front of no fans and the following week suspended the season. Uh, into the 2020 season, we, we made every attempt possible to uh, do what we could do to safely play baseball. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, the return of baseball in 2021, uh, we, we geared up for the April start, and then it got postponed again till May. Uh, and everything that, that we went through, I, I think, really speaks volumes of of minor league baseball and minor league sports, every team sat on Zoom calls together, uh, phone calls together, talking about all the different things that they were facing in their own uh, city or state or jurisdiction, how they were solving for it, creative ideas to come up with solutions. 
I mean, we talk to every team in the state of Ohio, minor league, major league, every, every sport. We talk to teams from all across America that were trying to come up with uh, creative solutions for pod seating and ticket selling. And how do you completely change the landscape of your ballpark and completely change how you sell tickets and communicate things to fans? We all worked on that together. And I think going into walleye hockey now after not playing for so long and having that experience of reopening uh, the ballpark, you know, a lot of the teams have reached out to us and asked us about our experience and how we, we did it and the types of things that we needed to do. And we kind of have a team that's we're almost veterans now in this uh, in this era of of trying to open through through a pandemic. And um, I think it gives us a lot of confidence uh, in, in moving forward and knowing that we can do it. Mike, I'm interested to know what the relationship is like, uh, between you guys and a fan base that you get to see basically year round. I mean, for so many minor, for so many minor league teams, you, you get into the summer and, and you get reacquainted with people and all of a sudden the fall hits and, uh, you know, you don't see them again for six months, but for you guys as a franchise, you know, the mud hens, not only being one of the oldest franchises in minor league baseball, but in all of major league baseball and professional sports. Um, and the walleye have been around for a long time too, I think 30 years. So what's that like to have a fan base that you kind of get to be, you know, family with, uh, over the span of an entire year, rather than just for the summer months. Well, it's a great opportunity, as you mentioned. Uh, we have an advantage that we can continue these relationships at a high level for, with our our fan base, with our uh, corporate community, um, with our all of our community partners. Uh, there's no gap. There's no uh, off season. So uh, we use the walleye games to talk about the mud hens, and we use the mud hens games to talk about the walleye. And, uh, and we use all those opportunities to stay in front of all of our fans. And you hit on a good point. It's a great advantage for us. Now, Mike, I remember when I visited the Mud Hens in 2018, uh, talking to you about this, you know, everyone who works for the Mud Hens also works for the Walleye, but it doesn't mean that you are working every home game, every home stand, every event, um, because, you know, there's enough burnout just in minor league baseball. If you had to add a whole nother sport to that, you know, I don't think people could like, literally, you know, get through that and live any semblance of a normal life or even just stay awake on an average basis. So I, it's a huge kind of logistical puzzle uh, in the entire front office, um, you know, making the schedules, determining who works when, determining what people are focusing on at what given time. Uh, if you can talk a little bit about that, about just um, how this all comes together uh, internally to successfully run two teams uh, year round. Yeah, and and I've 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 lived both both worlds. Uh, you know, we we started the walleye. Toledo hockey's been around for a long time, but we started the walleye franchise about eleven years ago, and I've been with the team for almost seventeen years. So I worked with the Mud Hens when we were just the Mud Hens, and in the you know, almost traditional model of we were almost we were all at every game we all you know worked a variety of different uh, roles on game days and during the day uh, but when we when we started the two team operation uh, one of the things that we we really solved for was in order to make it work uh, we had to we had to come to terms with uh, instead of having a person that has a very specific game day role, we had to define what the game day role was and find a group of people that could execute it so that we could all kind of work in a rotation. So if, uh, you know, our we have a, a manager of game presentation, but we have three or four people that can direct a game in the video room. Uh, that can take on that game day role. It's not the same person every single night. Uh, so that's that's one way that we we organize our game day responsibilities and hours. We do it with a rotation of people. You can rotate into several different game day roles. Uh, the other way is, uh, you know, we have a, a larger staff than than a traditional minor league franchise, uh, obviously. Uh, because we run two simultaneously and we have to really be uh, mindful about uh, sharing the workload so that you're dedicating uh, time 
in planning and dedicating time in executing. If everybody is just focused on what's happening next, then we can't get out ahead of ourselves. So we have people that are dedicated to, uh, you know, maybe in May or June during the mud hen season, their shift goes to 80% planning towards next walleye season and only 20% on execution uh, of the mud hen season, while someone else might be more 80% execution and 20% planning. That's really hard to get to that point, but I, I think we we got to that point after a few years. Yeah, Mike, one one final thing for me that I wanted to ask about is um, when you guys are planning out these events and you are sitting down and, and thinking about things for the mud hens and thinking about things for the walleye, um, they both involve Toledo, they both involve sports, but they are baseball and hockey. So what are the main differences when you guys are planning stuff out when you are trying to deal with the baseball fan base versus the hockey fan base? That's a, that's a really good question. And um, there are differences between the fan bases. Um, but ultimately, our primary consumer for both the mud hens and the walleye is families with children and uh, the, the kind of the, the wholesome entertainment that we, we try to, uh, that we try to cultivate is uh, we have the same goals at both venues. Um, and I think that we've had great success with, uh, we find something that works really well at the ballpark and we've had really great success creating that same type of experience or similar experience at the arena. But then we've also been victim of trying to do too much overlap sometimes. And over the years uh, of about a decade of, of this experience, we've, we've gotten really good at um, certain things work better on the hockey side and certain things work better on the baseball side. Uh, on the hockey side, we seem to have uh, a higher percentage of diehard fans. And so events with players and teams and coaches and alumni and jersey auctions and you know specialty nights, they seem to have a greater impact on, on the walleye games. And on the mud hen side, uh, there's uh, a less, less of the fandom. And I don't mean that people don't like the mud hens. We've got unbelievable support by the community. What I mean is the, the diehard checking the box score every day, checking the records, knowing the players, the percentage of that is, is a little bit smaller on the hen side because I think it's seen as more of a, uh, a family night out, a community activity, uh, a summer event outside. Uh, so we don't do as much maybe on the uh, much of the events related to the baseball team, if that makes sense. That's, that's the biggest difference. When this uh, segment began, we introduced Mike Keedy as the director of strategic planning and projects for the Toledo Mud Hens, and that is his job. But by the time this interview is available for public consumption uh, tomorrow, Friday, October 29th, Mike Keedy will no longer have that title because as it turns out, and I did not know this when reaching out to Mike for this interview, today is his last day with the Mud Hens after nearly 17 years. So I'm sure a surreal and kind of emotional day for you, even putting aside having to talk to, uh, you know, us fools over, uh, over a Zoom interview. But um, just, uh, you know, to close this out, Mike, tell us how you're feeling um, as you look back uh, during your last day on um, you know, almost 17 years working for the Mud Hens and what it's been like to, uh, you know, to play such a role with the franchise. Well, first of all, I think it's a really cool way to spend my last day because uh, as you, as you uh, tell the story often, minor league sports is a community. Uh, we're, we're in it with each other and it's always felt that way. And it's, it's a cool way to, to talk about it on, on my last day here. Um, I've done just about every job you could do at a ballpark, uh, and I've loved every minute of it. I've got three young kids now, three boys who've spent a lot of time here at the ballpark, along with my wife. Uh, and I love it deeply, and I always will. And uh, I will always support not only the minor league franchises here in Toledo, but anywhere and any place I can, because I, I just think it's, it's a wonderful thing. And, uh, 
grateful for. I, I feel grateful today, and uh, I look forward to a positive uh, future for the teams going forward. Well, kudos for all the great work you've done uh, with uh, the Toledo Mud Hens and the Toledo Walleye. Uh, I know I had a great time when I visited uh, the Mud Hens a couple years ago and showed a lot of his hospitality. And, you know, we'll miss you in minor league sports, but good luck with the next chapter. And thanks for taking your some of your final moments and <laughs> spending it us uh, here on the show before the show podcast. Thanks for being here, Mike. Thanks, guys. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Well, huge thanks to Mike Keedy. Uh, by the time you're hearing this, now formerly of the Toledo Mud Hens and Walleye. And a best of luck to Mike, of course, as he moves on in his career. And uh, that was a really interesting conversation. It's, uh, man, it just feels so great that we're able to do things again like, oh, we're having an outdoor hockey game. We're uh, able to let people into an arena again, all of it. Um, so big thanks to him. And uh, with that, uh, Sam and I will move on as we bid farewell to Ben for this week and uh, discuss a little bit more Arizona Fall League action. Sam is back, as he noted, uh, in New York, got a chance to be down in Arizona for a couple of weeks and take in the Fall League. Um, what were the biggest things that stood out to you? The thing that I think overview-wise is standing out to everybody is hitters are just crushing in the AFL this year. And ordinarily, I was talking about this with uh, with Jim Callis, our good buddy from uh, MLB Pipeline yesterday. Ordinarily in the fall league, hitters are a little bit ahead of pitchers because pitchers often go down to the fall league to work on stuff. There is an assignment usually that comes from uh, an organization, um, you know, with the exception of, uh, I remember a few years ago talking with somebody uh, actually it was, you know, who it was, it was a friend of the show, Brent Honeywell, who, uh, I asked him, what, what did the Rays tell you to work on down here? And he goes, I don't know, nothing. I don't really know why I'm down here. <laughs> Pretty great. <laughs> but ordinarily pitchers go down with a specific thing in mind. And so hitters are a little bit ahead of them, but hitters this year are like playing on the varsity level while hitters are still trying to figure out the jump or, or pitchers are still trying to figure out the jump from JV to varsity. It's been crazy. The offensive numbers that have come out of the AFL this year. Uh, but what else is standing out to you uh, from your time in the fall league and now being back and, uh, and having digested your time there? No, honestly, that's exactly where I wanted to start. So I'm glad you, you've noticed the same thing um, in person. It, it felt that way. It just that the hitters were so ahead of the pitchers, um, which, uh, is kind of backwards sometimes for how we start the year. So it's interesting to see that go the other way. Uh, typically when people are in Arizona in the spring, it's pitchers roll up and they just have to throw the ball. Uh, hitters have to get their timing down. Now it's kind of the other way around. Hitters have their timing down. Most of these guys have been playing uh, up until September. And then just, you know, we're, we're trying to stay fresh either with instructs or back home for a brief time or whatever before heading to Arizona. I like what you said, Tyler, about, pitchers working on things. Uh, I talked to Jackson Rutledge, uh, the Washington national system, maybe the biggest name prospect they have down there. And he said explicitly, like, I'm here to work on my curveball and my changeup, my fastball, my slider, are my go-to pitches. Um, but I'm here to, to, to get some innings in after he had, uh, some injury issues, including blister issues this year, which were super frustrating for him. But if I'm going to be a starting pitcher, I need to work on my curveball, and my changeup. Uh, because the fastball and slider are there. He can go to those at any time. Now he's gotten shellacked early. Like he, and when I watched him, the velocity is there. He's still throwing mid nineties, but uh, in terms of the breaking stuff, he, I think part of it might be that hitters are just learning to sit on that, those other pitches. Like, yeah, you might have to work on your curveball and changeup, but I'm not hitting anything unless it's a fastball. Uh, these hitters are too advanced to, to know that, um, which Kind of sucks for, for Jackson Rutledge, if we're being honest. Like, he needs that feedback of, hey, how is my curveball looking? And if you're not going to try to hit it, then what good is it going to be for me? But uh, it's been fascinating to see that. Also, walk rates are kind of crazy. And I got I tweeted this out yesterday. Um, so these stats aren't updated, but it's only been one day since they were posted. 
AFL pitchers collectively have a 602 ERA so far in the fall league. It's been two weeks and change. Yeah. I mean, you, you could say it's, it's Arizona it's offensive friendly environment. It's warm. There's a whole yeah. bunch of reasons behind that. Uh, that's extreme. That is extreme. Yeah. That's very much extreme, but a big reason why that's happening isn't because of slugging the baseball. Like, AFL batters collectively are slugging, I think, 427, which is pretty good as a league, but it's not like, holy crap, they're hitting the ball all over the yard. It's because of walks. The league-wide walk rate is 14.6%. And if you don't understand what that means, that means in all of the plate appearances that are happening, 14.6% of them are ending in walks. A lot of the replies I got to that tweet were people saying, well, it's the automated balls and strikes. Like, it's the robot umps. That's still being fine-tuned. That could be it to some degree. I'm right. not going to completely rule that out. But that's only happening in one park. ABS is only happening in Salt right. River. Right. Salt River is one of six ballparks in the Arizona Fall League. This is not a robot umpire situation. What I think is happening is, A, a lot of these guys are gassed. They are trying to make up innings. But after a loss 2020, in which guys were trying to stay fresh but weren't actually pitching the entire year, or at least in game scenarios, uh, a lot of these guys are just coming at the end of a long season, some of which they were injured, so it's tough to ramp up again. Also, the 15-second pitch clock at games I was at was pretty frustrating for pitchers to deal with. Now, you have to go through growing pains. The whole reason why the pitch clock is in place is to hurry the game up, is to keep action moving. There are certain guys who pitch really well in rhythm. Uh, Mackenzie Gore in his first start was one of them. I think when he was really on, it, he was catching the ball, he was throwing it right back. Uh, knew what he wanted to throw, and that's huge for him as somebody trying to figure out his delivery. Uh, Owen White with the Texas Rangers, he's somebody you're seeing have success early on here. Uh, I believe he was the AFL Pitcher of the Week in the first week. He's looked pretty good ever since as well. Um, he's another guy who just kind of gets it and chucks it and works really well into that 15-second pitch clock. Some of these other guys, it's tough for them to look up and see that there's five seconds left and you have to kind of hurry a little bit. Now, I think they're going to get better at that as the time goes on. Some of them may have seen the pitch clock, at least at the 15-second level in low A West uh, for a brief amount of time. It seems like guys at that level grew to be okay with it, and we did see game times go down. But right now, when you look up and you realize you have to make a decision in seven, five, three seconds, control is not going to be where it needs to be. Now, as you grow into that system, guys will get used to that and and know, okay, I need to make my decisions at 11 seconds, not seven or five. Um, but I do think that's that's had an effect early on. Um, there were a number of times where I was at games and there were multiple calls of automatic balls or strikes. And I don't mean that from a robot umpire. I mean from, hey, you took too long. That's an automatic ball, um, which honestly detracts from the point of the pitch clock. To have an umpire turn around after 15 seconds, announce to the press box, that was a ball. Uh, now it's 2-0. and So it, it, it's it's taken some time. I think some people who may have seen the first week and said this isn't working, uh, that was jumping to the conclusions too early. This is a six-week experiment. It's going to take some time. We'll, we'll see how things even out. I bet that walk rate is probably going to come down as, as guys get more used to the 15-second pitch clock. But it is worth monitoring as we go along because, again – it isn't that guys are are slugging the ball all over the place, although there have been some impressive exit velocities. But the biggest number for me was that walk rate and the fact that through ye through yesterday, uh, batters were reaching base at a 378 clip. If there was a single batter that did that, we would say he's having a great fall league. The league is doing that. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind here as we're evaluating AFL hitters and pitchers for how things are going. If, if an AFL hitter is having a really good AFL, dig a little deeper, try to figure out why that is, get into the scouting reports. Is he doing anything differently? Or is he just taking advantage of the environment, uh, which is great, and you can't fault him for doing well, but just take it with some grains of salt. Delicious, delicious grains of salt. Uh, what was the best thing you ate in Arizona? I, I got to say, I I failed at that. Oh. I I was not great. I know. I, I had like some of the fast food staples. Like I had Whataburger for the okay. first time. Okay. I did not know in my research. I did not know Whataburger was in Phoenix. So that was kind of a nice surprise. It's all over the place. in Phoenix. Yeah. Phoenix. I have said uh, for quite some time and 
I now live in an area that is soon going to be able to to call this too, but Phoenix was like the perfect vortex of fast food burger chains because they have Whataburger, In-N-Out, Shake Shack, all of them in existence down there, which like Shake Shack, extremely overrated. Sorry, New York. Um, but, But they're all very good. They're all there. And, uh, and yeah, Whataburgers, it's, it's delightful. I dig it. I liked it because it, it felt like fast food, but it also felt like the burger itself had been not handmade. Right. But it, it felt kind of like this was done by a human. It felt like there was some care taken in creating yes. it. For there were multiple you. pieces to it. It was difficult right. for it to eat in my car. Right. Um, which, I mean, if anybody's ever seen me, eat, a lot of things are difficult for me to eat in a car, but uh, I, I take that as as points in its favor. Like if you're just giving me this burger that everything's sticking together because it was made almost by a machine, it's not a great point. Uh, Whataburger felt a little bit better than that. I got in some in and out. I will say I had tacos chivas multiple times. Okay. Uh, on the recommendation of our coworker and friend, Will Bohr, um, they had a very, very good chicken burrito that was A, satisfying, but B, was not too big. I think sometimes people get, especially nowadays, too wrapped into like, this thing is huge. You're, right. It's going to take so many bites to get through it. And you're I feel attacked. Satisfied at the, I finished me I every like, trip like to an, Chipotle. Yeah. I would like <laughs> another one, but I don't want another one because it, it just left me with that feeling. Every, that's why I went back multiple times. It's like, I need to have this again. Right. Um, and you want to talk about something that was clearly made by a human, made with care and ingredients sprinkled all the way through. Burrito. you're not just getting like your rice layer and then you're right 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 whatever all right um, so highly recommend that other than that I, I i was like almost too focused on the baseball yeah <laughs> yeah to be like I'm, I'm gonna hit up this place and that place um so i i, I can't come back with too many food wrecks which is okay right. next time next time you I also uh you got a chance to do a little bit of touristing around you saw the grand canyon i believe for the first time correct I did, yes. And uh, and also Monument Valley. Monument Valley, which was a long drive. Amazing. Yeah, it would it I was telling Ben before the show began. It felt like walking into a Wiley e. Coyote cartoon. Yeah, totally does. Totally yeah. does. You're just in just a surrounded landscape. by red clay. Yeah, absolutely. Um everything feels very desolate in a in a perfect way and it, it was a good reminder I, I know we're going through a lot of climate change discussions now of like this needs to be protected at all costs. Um it's just another chance to kind of walk around in Mother Earth, which I really appreciate. I love New York City to death. I'm happy I'm back. Um, but all of a sudden to be sitting around surrounded by red clay desert uh was a refreshing change of pace, and I highly recommend it's it it was a five-hour drive to get there. So yeah, I was gonna say that was a hike. That was not a that was not a quick day trip for you. No, it was not. Yeah. Um, but worth it. Yeah, but again, like the the focus was the baseball. It was it was great to talk to guys like Jeter Downs of the Boston Red Sox, who got off to a very fast start uh, down there in the fall league, and uh, at last check was leading the Arizona Fall League in home runs with four. Um, I talked to Lars Newtbar a few times, no longer a prospect, but somebody who got sent to the fall league after being on the St. Louis Wild Card roster and in the major leagues uh, for much of the summer. The reason why he's in the fall league is to make up a bats because he was a bench piece for St. Louis. I was going to ask you this. Do you feel as though there are more guys this year in the AFL who have big league experience than we see in an average season? Because there are a handful of guys and I'm like, wait a minute. I know I watched that guy in major league games this year and now he's in the AFL. And largely it's because I feel like so many of those guys did not get either the full innings workload or at bats that maybe their organizations would have liked. Do you feel like there is an outsized amount of of those players this year or am I just noticing them more? Um. I, I don't know about outsides because one of my favorite examples of that was remember Kyle Schwarber in the AFL? I do. I was there the day that he he essentially came down for a rehab appearance in the fall league prior to the World Series. Yeah. 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 And I like so that it's happened in the past. And I think speaking of the Cardinals, though, the Cardinals were driving that process. I think Jordan Hicks getting sent to the fall league, just everybody was like, what are you doing here? Yeah. But again, he, he needed to make up innings somewhere. Right. And the Cardinals were like, hey, if this is allowed, we're going to do it. Yeah. Um, and they did the same with Lars Newbar. They did the same with Juan Yepes, who technically has not been in the major leagues, but they liked what he did enough this year at AAA Memphis 
to add him to the wild card roster. He was potentially going to make his major league debut in the postseason if they had used him in that game or if the Cardinals had beat the Dodgers. So I think the Cardinals kind of have an outsized effect on that on how the way we look at the league as a whole. Uh, Ryan Valade was there. Um, right. I talked to him a little bit about that. Of I think he only got three games in the majors. But right. So his, much of what we talk about. Uh, his teammate Jordan Sheffield, who was in the major league bullpen also uh, and on the Salt River roster. Yeah, rule five pick. Right, uh, right. Yeah, a guy so, who had to stay at the major league level in order to stick in the organization, but yeah. Right. So I, I think those two organizations were kind of driving that, but it, it was interesting talking to Ryan about that and just saying like, hey, listen, this is supposed to be prospect finishing school. This is supposed to be for guys who are getting, not in a major league environment by any means, but getting put on a stage to show off their skills before eventually going to the major leagues as early as next spring. Um, this is kind of one of their final steps for that. You've already taken that step. So everybody in that clubhouse is going to be coming to you and being like, what's the show like? Like, what, what are the hotels like? What are the, the perks like? Well, even if you got a brief taste of it, you're going to be the one with stories. Um, and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell them it's, it's the same baseball. That's, that's basically what it comes down to. So I think that it is fascinating uh, that there are at least a handful of guys who have seen the majors this year. Uh, it's not exactly if I was running an organization the way I would treat it. I think Valade's one thing, like three games is not necessarily a major leaguer make. Uh, I would not have sent Lars Newbar there, even if he needed to make up at bats. He got the major league experience. He knows what he needs to do to, to finish off. Um, but the fact that he's performing the way he is, is huge for him because he's going to be trying to win a, a major league spot again next spring in that Cardinals outfield and maybe trying to elbow his way in with this improved pop that he's showing so far. And uh, not only Arizona Fall League time, it is also the return of organization all-stars time at uh, MILB.com. Uh, Org all-stars back in 2021 after a hiatus in 2020 with no minor league season. Uh, but those are coming up. We've already got a couple uh, on the way and out the door. Yes, yes. We have the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Atlanta Braves are out so far. Uh, one thing we got to stress with organization all-stars, because I think people get confused about this every time we do them, and we try to make it as clear as we can in the story. Um, but one thing I really love about this is that it celebrates all minor leaguers. This is not just who are the best prospects in your system at each position. It is who had the best year in your minor league system. Um, so if it's a 31-year-old first baseman who had the best year, he's worthy of celebrating, uh, especially after the lost 2020 season. I think we can all appreciate good minor league performance when it happened, where, you know, no matter where it happened, no matter what age it happened. Um, so it's, it's a great opportunity to do this. I don't think anybody else on the internet really does stuff like this uh, that celebrates the entire minor leagues in this way. Um, so I love that it's unique in that, in that uh, way. And like I said, Arizona Diamondbacks and Atlanta Braves are the first two up. We're going to be rolling these out a couple of weeks uh, for the next several weeks as we head towards the end of the calendar year. Um, so check that out on MILB.com. We do have a landing page for that as well. So if you want to check back, if you missed out on your favorite team, or if you want to dive back into the archives, uh, you can look through that and see, you know, who was honored in each league. Uh, D-backs and Braves, I mean, there's the big names are certainly there. Alec Thomas leads the D-backs. Shea Langoliers leads the Braves. Some of those spots you won't find any surprise, but it's also an opportunity to learn something new about guys that you may have missed during the season. So be sure to check those out now and also in the coming weeks. And I'm sure we'll be talking about them more as they roll out uh, the rest of the 28 clubs here, like I said, in the, in the weeks and months to come. So we'll be back to uh, wrap this thing up coming up next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. 
Goodbye for this week's episode of the show before the show. But next week, we've got something fun coming up for you. Uh, we have done drafts in the past for our top prospects or our favorite AFL guys or whatever it is. This year, we're going to do an AFL draft, but with a little bit of a, a twist, Sam. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why I had this thought, but I did have this thought to do it a little differently than A, drafts we've done in the past and B, the way I've seen other people do drafts. Uh, it'll still be serpentine style. We'll figure out who's going to go first and then who goes second and Whoever has second pick will have third pick as well. But we're going to go position by position. Um, we're not going to have – it's just the two of us. So we're each going to get one catcher, one first baseman, one second baseman, third baseman, all the way down. But um, instead of, like, let's say I want to take, take Brett Beatty with my first overall pick, well, then Tyler doesn't have to worry about taking a third baseman for a while because I'm not going to take one. So in, to avoid that, we're each going to make our catcher's picks first, our first baseman picks second, et cetera. But to make it interesting, we'll set a timer. We'll maybe do it five minutes. Maybe we'll do it two minutes. Who knows? But we'll do some trades at the end. Uh, we're, we're not frozen in stone because, again, we're, we're going in positional order. So maybe Tyler gets the first baseman I want, and I get the outfielder he wants. So we agree to tra trade our outfielders and first baseman. We'll see how it plays out. Might not be anything, might be we're both satisfied with how things are. We make no trades, but uh, yeah, it'll, it'll be involving multiple aspects of an actual front office. We'll have draft day and trade deadline day all wrapped in one next week, all involving AFL players. Uh, so look out for that. And 
I, I haven't checked to see how many AFL players are available on MLB the show, but maybe we'll bring back that aspect as well. And we can yeah. Our lineups. That sounds fantastic. Each other. Um, plus I am, I am in Colorado. So if I have a team that would be benefited by trading, obviously I won't do it. Um, <laughs> let, uh, before we get out of here, we have to dive into one thing that is currently setting baseball Twitter aflame. Oh, no. Recording this on Thursday afternoon. We haven't talked about this, and yet I know exactly what's going on. <laughs> uh, here is a quote, a tweet that was posted a short time ago, uh, nary two hours, not even two hours ago. And here is the tweet, quote, bullpen refers to the area of a bull's pen where bulls are held before they are slaughtered. It's a word with speciesist roots, not a word that I was familiar with or knew existed. Uh, and we can do better than that. Switching to arm barn would be a home run for baseball fans, players, and animals. This is a tweet that if you haven't heard about it, you may have guessed is from the uh, people for the ethical treatment of animals, otherwise known as PETA. Uh, bullpen being a term that they are not into. Arm barn being the suggested replacement i am on team arm barn baby arm barn is hilarious i'm i'm bringing arm barn into my broadcast <laughs> bullpen is done bullpen is past man bullpen is now facebook arm barn is meta which is what so also it, just broke a moment ago that facebook is renaming itself meta because that'll solve everything uh arm barn dude i'm in on arm barn that's hilarious arm barn is is, is very funny it's so um, funny. it's so good it's the thing about bullpen is that we have to remember that all board. words are made up, right? All words are made up, right? All, like the idea, anybody who says like, oh, well, we have to stick with bullpen because it's tradition. Whatever, man. Like right. there's no reason. No. There's nothing inherent no. about a bullpen. That's no. like, oh yeah, that's where the relievers are. Kept. Right. There's no, there's no bowls there. There's no whatever. Right. It's not even a pen really anymore. I guess there's a gate that makes it a pen. Yeah, I guess. Sort of. Um, that being said, I didn't think this was something I was going to have to think about this morning when I woke up. Like, <laughs> I've never thought, you know what? The bullpen could really use a name change. Um, I don't know. I arm barn is fun to say, the but it's also barn. tough to say. Got to get this dude out of the arm barn. Our, 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 our <laughs> yeah, struggling. I, get the relievers on out to the arm barn. Yeah. It, it oh. also, for me, it like connotes like we send him to a barn upstate is like just what happens when you decide that the starter is now going to be a reliever, which is something we deal with right. a lot in prospects. Of right. Like, oh, this guy doesn't have a third pitch or it's, it's not quite working as a starter. We're going to send you, we're going to send you to the arm barn upstate. Just <laughs> talk about sending somebody to slaughter. Um, Dude, I am into the arm barn idea. I, I wish I had like a better idea. I'm into it. I'm just it's it, for some reason I'm not latching on to armbar, but I'm totally available to switch it up. From <laughs> uh, according to uh, MLB's uh, official historian John Thorne, um, this is the reason why the area for relief pitchers became known as a bullpen. Uh, back in the late 1800s, the term originally referred to a roped-off area in foul territory where late-arriving fans could watch the game. But as relief pitching started to develop, they moved the fans out of there to give relievers space to warm up to come into the game. So the term did not originally even apply to relievers. It applied to where you keep the fans uh, who were late coming into the game. That's where the term originated. And, uh, man, amazing. Just absolutely amazing that this is a discussion that we're having, and I am into it. And you know who else is into it? Clint Frazier, uh, who tweeted just a moment ago, uh, now warming up in the arm barn. Who is that warming up in the arm barn? And then please name it this, followed by three cry laughing emojis. So, you know, we got big leaguers on team arm barn. I'm into it, man. Well, as now I said, I said in a tweet too, it just sounds like something that like Red Barber would have said in a broadcast like the late 1930s, like, ah, starting pitcher struggling here in the fourth inning. And that means Ira Hutchinson will get his wing loose in the old arm bond. <laughs> it does, it does feel like that's not you what, know, when that's you call the penalty box the sound. sin bin. Right. You know? Right, 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 right. Yeah. Like as writers, I don't know if you if you ever caught on to this at home. At a certain time, you just need to start using different words. Yes, very much so. Left hander, southpaw. Right. Hurler, 
pitcher, yep. second base, keystone, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe we can mix it in there afterwards. Like you instead better, of just saying bullpen all the time. Better believe that I will be throwing this term into a story to see if it gets caught. Maybe so, I'll throw it into some prospect so. reports next spring, too. He needs to We're improve his changeup or else he's going to the arm barn. We're doing it. We're doing it. We're making arm barn happen. Stop trying to make arm barn happen. No, we're making arm barn happen. I want you all to know. Uh, the world's worst red barber impersonation, arm barn discussion, all of it is here on this week's episode of the show before the show. You can get in touch with us, podcast at MILB.com. Let us know your thoughts on Arm Barn um, and uh, and anything else you would like to hear us discuss here in this world of minor league baseball. Next week, the AFL draft uh, and uh, some more fun stuff coming your way as we round the corner into November already here uh, in, the, in the year that was 2021. That was 18 minutes long, and now it's almost over. Uh, So that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. He's Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week.